I don't know how many of you have ever taken a job only to discover that, you know what, that, that job was a lot different than you were expecting it to be. I know I have done that many times with, uh, with, with my electrical work. I take a look at a job and I try to figure out what's going to be involved with it. And then I, I get into it and I discover, okay, this is very, very different from what I was anticipating. This is, this is going to take me down a different path than I had initially planned on going down. I know that there are other times where you, even just within individual jobs, but even just in a, in a career field, there are many individuals that can step into a potential job, a potential career, and then they get into it and they discover, you know what, I'm not sure I actually like this. Or even perhaps sometimes we can step into a job and find out that, you know what, uh, my boss had different expectations for me than I had coming into this job. That can happen a lot. I've I've experienced, I've observed this quite a bit in the electrical business where just the other day I was talking to a young man who was, he was interested in electrical. He was pursuing the electrical field. Well, he had taken a job with one company and he thought he was going to be learning electrical, how to wire houses, how to, how to do all these things. And they had him on the digging crew. That's technically still electrical. You got to dig the ditches. The hole's got to be put there. But it's very different from what he was anticipating when he thought he would be running wire and making connections and learning those sorts of things. He was learning a different side of the trade than he was anticipating. Well, when those sorts of things come up, there's choices to be made. You have option. You could talk to your boss about it. You can say, hey, you know, I, I, I thought I was going to be doing this, but I'm doing this instead. You know, what, is, is this my role moving forward? Do we need to talk about this? What, help me bridge the gap here. And maybe he'll adjust that role. Or maybe the boss will say, you know what, I'm sorry for the misunderstanding, but this is what I have for you at this time. And then you have other choices that you have to make, whether you're going to stick it out and say, okay, I'll, I'll submit to that and I'll just do what, what you're asking me to do. Or you could say, you know what, I'm going to quit and find another job. There's those different options, different choices that are before you. And those choices can have a profound implication for your life and the trajectory of your career path, Right? If you change jobs or if you stick it out or you get training in different areas, they can, they can have profound implications for your life. Or they may be meaningless in the grand scheme of things, right? They just might be blips on the radar of, of just the, the different changes that happen with career paths over time. Consider, though, that's, that's one sphere of life where you know, maybe you've got a particular agenda or particular expectations for something, but then someone who has other authority over you has a different agenda, has different uh, expectations for your role. Consider the implications of having a different agenda from the God who created you. The all-knowing, the all-wise God of the universe who has, who has revealed himself to humanity. He has given instructions for us for how we are to approach him and how we are to relate to him. And then we say, you know what, no thanks. I think I want to relate to you according to my terms. I thought this would be different. I, I, I thought I could come to you and approach you in this other way. And I'm going to do things my own way. In our text today, Jesus is going to rebuke Peter for thinking human thoughts, in, 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 in having a human agenda as opposed to the divine agenda that the Lord 
pass. And Jesus is going to be explaining his own agenda, even, even in the face of Jesus, explaining why he is there and what he has come to do and what the agenda is for him on the earth. Peter is still at odds with that. He doesn't have a right understanding of that, and he needs to be corrected. And what we're going to see from our text is that we need to embrace Jesus for who he is and on his terms, not our own. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today, and you go ahead and turn there. I'll be reading the text for us today. We're picking things up in verse 27. If you recall, just, just to reset the context for us yet again, we had just come out of this passage where Jesus has done this two-stage healing. There's a, a blind man, and he healed him just kind of partially at first to where he could see a little bit, but things were still blurry, and then he heals him the rest of the way, and he can see clearly. His eyes were fully opened, and he was able to see everything clearly. The purpose of that was Jesus is bringing, it's a living parable of sorts, Jesus is bringing the disciples along. They, they, kind, they can kind of see the truth of what Jesus has been trying to communicate and demonstrate before them, but they don't quite see clearly yet. And Jesus is patiently bringing them along, opening up their eyes to the point where they will see clearly. And in our text today, this, Jesus is going to seek to open up the eyes even further and teach the disciples, about who He is and what He has come to do. So let's pick things up with Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27. Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In this first section, these first handful of verses, we find the person of Christ reviewed as he is on the road there discussing with the disciples and, and asking them this question, who do men say that I am? He's, he's reviewing, this is the person of Christ reviewed. Let's, let's talk about my identity. Who am I? Sometimes people ask questions for different reasons, right? Sometimes we can ask a question of someone because we genuinely don't know the answer. Like, I, I don't know, so I'm asking from you. Other times, the, the purpose of the question is not so much to gain information, but to, but to cause the person we're asking the question of to, to make them think and to consider information. And that's the purpose of Jesus' question here. It's not because He didn't know, it's He wants the disciples to be thinking through all the experiences that they've had with Jesus Christ and what the different people were saying out in the world about who Jesus is and to consider who Jesus is. So they have these different responses. So who do, who do people say that I am? There's, you follow me. There's different people that have different ideas about me. Well, what do the crowds believe about me? Well, some say he's John the Baptist. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. Why would the people conclude that, that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist? I don't know if you recall when we were going through chapter 6 and we had 
Herod, that, 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 that story about Herod and how Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. Well, in that text in, in chapter 6, Herod had heard about Jesus and Herod had concluded, oh, John the Baptist, whom I beheaded, has come back from the dead. Well, why did Herod conclude that? We talked about at that time when we were studying that text that, that Herod's conclusion was, okay, there was, there was this prophet, there was, there was John the Baptist, and, and Herod knew that this man was a prophet. He knew that he was a man of God. And yet, because of, of his, his wife and his stepdaughter, he had John beheaded. Well, in that culture, there was a, there was a religious belief that the only way that these miracles, that these signs, these wonders could be done by someone is if they weren't actually just a mere human, but they were a ghost to come back. So Jesus was doing all these miraculous things because maybe he was the ghost of John the Baptist. And so that idea is out and about within the culture as well. And so when Jesus asked the disciples, hey, you know, who do people say that I am? Well, some people think you're John the Baptist come back to life or maybe the ghost of John the Baptist wandering about the countryside doing all these miraculous things. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Well, why Elijah? Elijah, of course, was, was one of the Old Testament prophets, one of the most prolific of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, if you were to, if you were to look and ask a, a Jew living this time, you know, who are some of your heroes of the faith? There'd, there'd be only a handful of names that would come out from that. You'd, you'd hear the name Moses. The great, the great prophet of God who led the children of Israel up out of the land of Egypt. And another one of the names that you would hear would be the prophet Elijah. The one who stood on Mount Carmel and called down fire from heaven in this great contest of the ages between the gods. And the one who communed with God on different levels. Elijah worked many miraculous wonders, and, and so people think, well, here's Jesus. He's doing these miraculous wonders as well. Maybe, maybe Jesus is Elijah, because remember also, the last book of the Old Testament, we have the book of Malachi. And in Malachi, there's a prophecy that Elijah would come and be the forerunner of the Messiah himself, and so the people are thinking, hey, you know what? This guy's doing miracles. Elijah did miracles. Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before the coming of the day of the Lord. So maybe this Jesus guy, maybe this is the Elijah who was to come. Thus, the anticipation for the Messiah would be that he would be coming very soon on the heels of Elijah, who they think Jesus is. So that's one theory about the identity of Jesus. And there's a third option that the disciples mention. Uh, some say you're just one of the prophets. One of the prophets. And that, that alone might seem insignificant. Oh, he's just, you know, he's just a prophet. Well, consider uh, additional details, though. I mean, think about how, where we are in the, in the period of history here where there had not been a prophet of God in Israel for 400 years. This, that, you know, when you look in your Bibles and you see the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, they call it the intertestamental period. That's a 400-year gap where there is no word from the Lord. And even the Jews at that time recognized, they, they looked and there were different people that were writing things. There were different people that were composing books and stuff, but, but none of the Jews recognized any of it as Scripture. None of it was viewed as a word from the Lord. No one was recognized as a prophet like 
Malachi or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel were viewed as prophets of the Lord. And so for someone to say, oh, a prophet has arisen in Israel, that's a big deal. Finally, after 400 years, the silence has ended. God is speaking once again. So for them to conclude that Jesus might be one of the prophets, that is a significant thing to conclude. Consider also back in chapter 1 when Jesus first burst onto the scene and He steps into the synagogue and He teaches and the people are amazed. Wow, who is this guy? He's teaching with authority, not like those scribes. They, they didn't recognize the scribes as ones who had inherent authority. Now Jesus speaks as one with authority, therefore he must be a prophet. There's something more to him than a mere scribe or rabbi or teacher. Clearly something different than the other leaders we have around us. So Jesus, whoever he is, he's, he's definitely a significant character. Right, definitely someone worth considering, whether he is a re- resurrected John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. This is someone that we ought to consider and think about. But then Jesus probes back in to the disciples in verse 29. He says, ah, but who do you say that I am? And that inflection within my voice accurately reflects the emphasis in the original language. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up with boldness, and he makes the confession for the ages. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Of course, the word Christ is the, is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah. You are are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited coming one. You're the one we've been looking for, the one we've been longing for, the one who is to restore all things, the one who is to come and bring deliverance, the one who is going to save Israel. That's you. You're the one. You're the guy we've been looking for this whole time. In many ways, this is, this is an incredible moment of clarity for the disciples. I mean, they've been with Jesus all this time, and Jesus has been challenging them. Okay, you still don't understand. You still don't get it. There's this, there's this moment of clarity with the disciples, and this is why if we were to look at the parallel passage in, in Matthew where, where Jesus says, yeah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God has revealed this to you from heaven. It's just, it's just an incredible moment of clarity for the, the disciples. It's like, finally, all right, you're getting something right here, Peter. Good job, Finally. After all that they've seen, Jesus casting out the legion of demons, declaring forgiveness for sins, calming the stormy seas, walking on water, multiplying food, raising people from the dead. It is only natural and only right to conclude, yes, this is the Messiah. These are what the prophets spoke of that the Messiah would do when he came on the scene. This is what we've read about in passages like Isaiah. And Jesus is fulfilling those words. It seems like they finally get it, right? There he is, the Messiah. 
Jesus implicitly confirms their understanding in verse 30. He says he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, that Jesus didn't contradict that understanding. That seems to confirm and affirm, yep, you've got it right, but I don't want you to spread that around at this time. That's consistent with the messianic secret that we've seen as we've moved through this book. Jesus has been consistently saying, okay, yep, I'm doing this miracle, or now I'm doing this teaching, but don't don't tell anyone. You don't, need to, you don't need to spread this around right now. We've discussed several times Jesus has his plan, he has his timeline, and he's revealing himself, and he's, he's expounding things as, as is appropriate throughout his ministry. And so that continues on. That, that is the continued theme here. But those instructions do reveal to us that Jesus affirmed them in their understanding that he is indeed the Messiah. So it does seem as though they finally are getting something. Their, their eyes are finally beginning to be open. They're finally beginning to see more clearly. At least, at least partially. Because it still seems as though, though the vision is beginning to come into focus, it's not quite where it needs to be. Again, we're fresh off that scene where Jesus had to challenge their failure to see and understand and provide that living parable to them with that two-stage healing. They do see, but it's still just a partial sight. They do embrace that Jesus is the Messiah, but they do not yet see and understand the implications of what that means and what the Messiah has come to do. Most Jews at this time were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for, for someone who was going to come in and, and cast off the shackles of Rome and establish Israel in their land once again and, and build the kingdom again in Israel. But Jesus in this text is going to go on to explain his purpose. So look at verses 31 and 32 where we'll see that the, the purpose of Christ revealed. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Text says he began to teach them. This is new information. This isn't something that Jesus had been teaching openly up to this point. Jesus' message up to this point has been a message of, of repentance and, and belief in the Messiah, in Him as the coming one, because the kingdom of heaven was near, right? The kingdom of God had come near, but now there's a shift. Jesus began to teach them. He begins to be explicit about the purpose of His arrival. This does mark a significant turning point within this book. Here is, here is that change of focus, that, that, that change of, of emphasis. Those, those first chapters of the book focus so much on the identity of Christ, who He is and the authority of Christ, that, that He is the coming Messiah and He has come. But now at this point forward, the focus is shifting to the purpose of Christ and His coming crucifixion. This is going to be the first of three predictions that Jesus is going to make about his coming death. And after each prediction, he's going to explain something to the disciples about what discipleship looks like. But here he is, revealing to the disciples 
what would have been shocking details for them to take in. I don't know if you've ever attended some kind of function or event where you're under the impression that there was one thing going on and then you show up and it turns out, well, okay, this is, this is something different than I was expecting. Like, okay, you know, I thought this was just a social function and actually this is a business pitch or something of that nature. Like, we've, we've been to things like that. Or maybe it was something that's happier. Maybe you were just attending something and it turns out it's actually like a surprise party or something like that. It's just, it's, it's surprising to you. It's different from what you were expecting it to be. We can be caught off guard in those moments and I, I can just imagine the disciples' surprise when Jesus says, okay, yes, you've got it, I'm the Messiah and guess what, I'm gonna die. Come again? Like, that, that's not what we're supposed to be talking about here. That, that's not what we're ex- expecting, that's not what we're anticipating. No, you're supposed to reign, you're supposed to rule. But Jesus says, no, this is, this is why this is why I'm here. Notice in the text the word must. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. That word has, has implications of necessity built into that word. It is necessary. Some translations render it that way. It is necessary for the Christ to suffer, for the Son of Man to suffer many things. It's not optional. It's not incidental to the mission. It's not something that Jesus says he'll do if if he feels like it when the moment comes. No, this must happen. It is necessary for this to be carried out. And there's four things that he lists here as being necessary to happen. First, he says the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. Sufferings of the Messiah are, are detailed in prophecy, we think of passages like Isaiah 53, which, which we return to often, especially as we consider the Lord's table and the prophecies of, of the sufferings of the Messiah. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted, crushed, pierced. There's the chastisement that belonged on us being poured out upon this suffering servant. The scourging are all words that Isaiah 53 uses. Jesus says you must suffer many things. It's not just the fact of death. There's the betrayal by one of his close disciples. The beatings, the lashes, the crown of thorns crushed upon his head, the nails being pierced into his, his hands and his feet, the spear thrust in through his side, the wrath of God poured out upon the eternal Son. He must suffer many things. He says the Son of Man must be rejected. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, to be killed. In a few chapters, Jesus is going to quote the Old Testament passage, Psalm 118, that says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The religious leaders of the day, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, they all reject Jesus as the Messiah. They turn their backs on Him. They do not embrace Him for who He is. 
And as a result, he says, the Son of Man must be killed. He suffers, he's rejected, and he will be killed. Again, imagine the shock on the faces of the disciples. And this was their teacher. I mean, they've been traveling around the countryside with this guy for months and years, learning from him, seeing all the miraculous things, the wonderful things that he was doing and the message that he was proclaiming. And again, the conception of the the Messiah, that you're you're the one that's going to overthrow Rome, and now you're saying you must die, that it's necessary for you to die? What are you talking about, Jesus? That doesn't fit with what we thought you were coming to do. This is what must happen. But the final thing he says is, is, is it doesn't end with death. He says after three days he must rise again. The Son of Man must rise again. He won't stay dead, but he will rise again from the dead. So Jesus, he, he unpacks all these things and he begins to expound these things and begins to teach them about all of these things. Yes, there's, there's the suffering, there's the rejection, there's the death, but then there's the resurrection. Jesus wasn't just leaving them with the, with the idea of death, but no, he says, no, there's going to be a resurrection here. He will rise again. The Son of Man, referring to himself, will rise again. And I love the beginning of verse 32 where it says, and he said this plainly. Very direct speech. Right? There's no metaphor going on here. There's no, no parables cloaking things. It wasn't disguising anything. There's no riddles for them to decipher. No, he, he's speaking to them plainly, plain language. Jesus beginning to open their eyes, trying to get them to see clearly about these things. So he gives them more truth that they may begin to grasp it and understand it. The disciples, their seeing was still fuzzy, right? It still wasn't fully clear. They they were understanding that he was the Messiah. They did not understand his purpose. And even as we're going to go on and continue to read, there's still going to be some resistance to these ideas about what Jesus has come to do. Okay, yeah, he's, he's the Messiah, but they're not getting his purpose. And so Jesus is trying to, trying to bring that into sharper focus for them. And Peter isn't exactly thrilled about it. Peter takes him aside in, at the, in, in verse 32. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, we have the benefit of having the totality of God's revelation, right? And we have everything that God has revealed, and we look back at this and say, you know, I, I don't think this is a very enviable position, enviable position to be in for Peter. I mean, you're rebuking the Lord. <laughs> Doesn't seem like something you should be doing, Peter. You're rebuking not just the Lord, but you're, you're rebuking the one that you just confessed to be the Messiah. What are you doing here? That's a bold move there, Peter. Well, Jesus is going to respond to the disciples, and the way that he responds to them reveals that they, they, still, they still aren't seeing clearly yet. It, it, it's still not in sharp focus. And so look at verse 33 where we see, the priority of Christ reinforced. Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, uh, he took him aside and began to rebuke him. But in verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Jesus kind of turns things around back on Peter. Jesus was being rebuked and now he rebukes Peter back and he says to him, get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Those are very strong words from our Savior. Get behind me, Satan. The very name Satan means adversary or opposer. Satan has been an adversary to Christ. He's been an adversary and an opposer to the things of the Lord. In fact, we saw this again, just recalling a few details for us. As we, if we go back to chapter 1, we see Jesus, he's in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Satan is trying to derail the ministry of Jesus before it even gets started in the wilderness. In chapter 4, Jesus describes the hard soil as, as those who hear the word of God but immediately reject it because Satan comes and takes away the word that is sown. So Mark is very clear about who Satan is. This is not an individual that's just, well, you know, there's, there's Satan. He's just, he's just a bad guy out there. No, no, he is the opposer. He is the adversary. He is the one who opposes the purposes of the Lord and seeks to bring ruin and destruction. So for Peter to rebuke Jesus, right as, as Jesus is explaining what the Christ must do, this is nothing other than satanic influence and tactics. Jesus is in effect communicating to Peter, no, you're speaking like Satan speaks. You're opposing the very words and the works of the Lord. And that is satanic. That phrase, get behind me, could be understood in a couple of ways. It could carry the idea of, no, you need to get back in line, Peter. You've, you've stepped out of line here. You're out of bounds. Know your place. Alternatively, it could carry the idea of, you get away from me. You, you have no place here. There's a similar phrase in the book of Matthew where Jesus is responding to the temptations of the devil on, in Matthew chapter 4. Get away from me. That's the same idea, same kind of phrase translated that way. Get away from me. But the key phrase that follows is this, where Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. This is the fundamental issue for the disciples throughout the book of Mark. Every time that, that they're in a situation and they're not grasping something and Jesus is trying to challenge their understanding on things, this is, this is really what it keeps coming back to. They're thinking about earthly things. They're thinking about the things of man, the interests of man. Just a few verses earlier in this same chapter, they're, they're worried about bread. Oh, no, we forgot bread. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm trying to communicate to you spiritual truth. This isn't about physical bread. This is the whole issue. They're, they're, th they're not thinking about God's things. They're not thinking about what God is trying to accomplish. They're thinking about the things of man. God has plans. God has purposes. And God is doing amazing things. And God is going to bring redemption. God is going to rescue and save. But He isn't going to do any of that your way. He has His own way, His own purposes, and His own plans. 
reminded of that great text, again, another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, which is a call for the people to repent and believe and in, in, in trust and turn to the Lord. And Isaiah 55, verse 6 through 9, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon it's a great message, a great, great hope that is given to Israel. Turn from your wicked way and trust in the Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, Isaiah 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So often we think we've, we've got things all figured out. We've got things, we've got it all worked out in our own minds and, and we figured out what, the, what we want to accomplish and all the things, but those are our ways. But then there's God's ways and God's thoughts. And they are higher than our ways and higher than our thoughts. And, and Jesus is rebuking Peter and tells him, no, Peter, you're setting your sights too low. You need to lift your gaze. You have mere human interests and purposes, and you are not independent from God. You must be dependent upon Him and His interests. So Peter may have had these, these grandiose ideas about what the Messiah was supposed to do and be. He may have had these, these great plans about what he was going to do when, when he finally overthrew Rome. But he was of human origin. These ideas were not of divine origin. So though he rightly understood that Jesus was the Messiah, he was putting his own human conceptions on the significance of that truth. So Jesus says, no. You're still not seeing clearly just yet. He rebukes Peter. But he will ever so patiently continue to teach and to seek to draw their eyes upward until they are able to see clearly. Again, this is the first of, of three predictions about the coming suffering of the Messiah. So Jesus challenges them and reinforces this idea, no, these are my purposes. These are my priorities. It is the Lord's designs. It is the Lord's plans. And it is not mere human plans and designs. The priority of Christ is reinforced. How should we think about this text as we consider just points of application and thinking through the significance of this teaching from Jesus Jesus has been challenging his disciples to see with the eyes of faith, and so that's why he asks them about his own identity. He wants them to, to embrace Jesus for who he is, and so we see that the eyes of faith begin with a right understanding of who Jesus is. This is where seeing begins. We must have a right understanding of who Jesus Christ is, have a right understanding of his identity as he has revealed himself to be. 
You know, there are many different ideas about who Jesus Christ is in the world. There are different ideas that the, that the disciples observed as they were in, in their day. Well, there's different ideas today about who Jesus is. Some people say he's a great teacher. Some people say, oh, you know, he was a prophet, but they deny his deity, or they deny that he was the Messiah that was to come. The truth is that if he is merely a teacher, or if he is just merely a prophet, then the adjective good cannot be attached to that, because he would be a liar as well. If he is not the Messiah, if he is not God in human flesh, then he is not a good teacher, for a good teacher would not lie about his identity. But he isn't just a good teacher, right? He isn't just a prophet or just a good example for our lives. He is all of those things, but he is so much more. He is the Messiah. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. He is the one through whom God created all things. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one in whom all things consist, the image of the invisible God. And he is the one to whom every knee will one day bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The eyes of faith begin with a right understanding of who Jesus is. But it does not and it cannot stop with that and that alone. It's one thing to know intellectually who he is. We can know information in our minds about who Jesus Christ is. We we have our doctrinal statement that has information about who Jesus is and what we believe the Scriptures teach about that. We have our systematic theology books and we have our classes and we talk about all these things and all that's very well and good and I'm grateful for those things. But if it's just intellectual and if it's just head knowledge and if we never move from understanding the truth about who Jesus is to understanding the significance about what that means for my life and for yours, we've missed the point. The eyes of faith begin with a right understanding of who Jesus is, but it must move beyond that. It must move to embracing Jesus on His terms and not our own. The eyes of faith must embrace Jesus, His purposes, His design, His interests, His things, not our own. So often as as fallen humanity, we are so prone to craft a God in our own image rather than worshiping the Almighty God who has created us in His. We want to set the terms of, of our relationship with the Father, and, and we want to be in the driver's seat. We want to define who Jesus is for us. This is the fundamental issue of, of humanity and mankind. We, we want to worship the, the Creator, and we want to worship the created thing rather than the Creator, as Romans chapter 1 speaks about. Fashioning gods into our own image. Just yesterday, I saw a Facebook post of someone asking if a specific church was, was LGBTQ friendly. And they wanted to know if, if 
that, that church was going to affirm them in, in their chosen lifestyle. It seemed from their posts and the way that they were interacting with others in the comments that they, they liked the idea of God. They liked the, the idea of spirituality, but, but they didn't like it at the expense of their claimed identity. So they're seeking to approach God on their own terms. Now, that's, that's an example in, in that arena of it. We all have a propensity to do this in different ways, right? We, we can be tempted to think like, oh, you know, those, those people out there, they do that sort of thing, and that's, you know, that's not us. But we have those same tendencies within our own hearts to do the exact same thing. We want to approach God on our terms. We want to do things our way. And that could show up in a variety of ways. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? I know I have. Lord, you know, if you would just do this for me, I'll do this for you. And as if you can bribe the God of the universe. What are we doing? We're, we're trying to establish the terms of the relationship rather than submit to His desire for our lives. We, we, we set our minds on our own interests and our own desires and what we want to see accomplished rather than what God has already told us in His Word, what His interests and His desires are. We need to embrace Jesus on His terms and not our own. And I, want, I want us to flip over to Colossians chapter 3. This is the last Passage, the last thing that we're going to consider before we close out our time this morning. Colossians chapter 3, as we think about this, this challenge from Christ to Peter, you're not, you're not setting your mind, you're, you're not thinking about God's interests, you're not thinking about the things of God, but the things of man. Well, look what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, will, you also will appear with Him in glory." The issue of, of setting our minds on and pursuing the things of man and not the things of God, that's not just something that, that we struggle with before we come to faith in Christ. That's, that's something that even believers have to wrestle with and, and battle with, with our own flesh, within our own lives. And Paul writes here to the church of Colossae, hey, you need to get your gaze upward. You need to look upward unto Christ. There's, there's so many things going on in the world around you that will distract us from the things of the Lord, distract us from the priorities that God would have us in this life. And he says, look unto Jesus. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Look unto that. So as we close, my encouragement for us today is just that. To look to Jesus. 
to lift your gaze, to consider not only that He is the Messiah, He is that, but consider the implications of what that means for you and what that means for me. And to embrace Him, not on our own terms, not not according to our own agendas and what we want to see accomplished within our lives, but to embrace Him on His terms and for what He wants to build within us, within our lives. Lord, I thank you so much for this text today. I thank you for Jesus Christ and his patience with the disciples. I thank you that he is so so patient to teach, even at times, Lord, where there are strong rebukes. Jesus does not completely dismiss Peter and reject him as a disciple, though he continues to teach him. And even though Peter is, has many faults, and we see this throughout, and we see even the denial of Christ that is to come in the future chapters that we will study, if you permit, we still see the patience and the restoration that occurs, which gives us hope, Lord. So often we set our own, our own eyes on things of this world. We, we have our own interests and our own agenda for our lives. But your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we look unto Christ, as we look unto what he has accomplished for us, as we look upon the purpose of why he came. I pray that you would help us to look unto Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, and that we would adopt your interests, your purposes, your designs and submit ourselves unto you. Work that within our hearts and our lives, and I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.